ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Competition is gentlemen it is wednesday and that means just one thing um in the largest scale of the world sure other things are going around but all that matters to you is that the dome patrol is back that means me that means ross jackson and that means about an hour of great saints conversation my brother how are you doing today Doing fine, man. Doing fine. Always a, a highlight of my week, regardless of anything else that's going on, uh, to be around here with you and to, uh, you know, strut our no follicles. That's but, right. Uh, you know, everything we got going on here at the Dome Patrol. So excited, man. Uh, how about you? How are you holding up? I'm doing well, you know, moving forward on the house and, and getting uh, more things done. We might get in actually earlier than we thought. Hey. So that's cool. Um, so, of course, my wife has started the process of telling me what furniture we're going to have. <laughs> it's so funny because I know you have that, that starting now. And then you also have the process of decorating baby girl's room too. Right. And so it's just like, you'll, you might, you might pick a pan set. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I have my office that I get to decorate, but it's incredibly small, but just enough to be as long as it's quiet in there and I right. can chill out. But yeah, that's my one thing that I get. So everything else I understand it's just, can I find something to sit on that's comfortable? Right. <laughs> in any other room, that's all. I just need a place that's comfortable. That's and do it. I have enough space to put my things in a closet? I'm right. good. I'm good. <laughs> that's all we ever get anyway. That's it. That's all we need. That's all. And that's the thing is, you know what I mean? Like, we, we learn how to operate on, you know, low, low necessity. We're fine. Low maintenance. That's totally fine. I got a place to sit. Dope. Got a place I can put my coat. Awesome. Man, I, my, my first gig when I was living in Springfield, Massachusetts, and I was living in a, an efficiency apartment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it was two rooms, the kitchen slash dining room and right. the main room. So mm-hmm. my apartment was furnished with one television that sat on the floor, a futon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't even have a kitchen table because I was like, I'm the only one who's ever come in here. I'm not bringing any women right. to this apartment. That is not going to happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, I ate at the stove <laughs> or at or I'll sit yep. on my futon. And so and yep. I had my bathroom, and that was it, dude. So I don't I'm not a person who needs a lot. I, I just don't. Mm-hmm. If I can eat, I can sit and I can watch the game and play a video game from the other time and listen to my music. I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. Gucci. That's my life. Gucci. <laughs> i'm with you man i did i did the tv on the floor mattress on the floor life for many years many years it was it happy didn't have a problem didn't have a problem no. with it no, no i had a roof I was women <laughs> women then come along and be like i ain't sleeping on the floor <laughs> that that straightened me up real quick yeah, you better find like, oh. a box spring in a, in a right that was, I was like, what do you mean a box spring i'm i'm fine i just got this mattress <laughs> look it's got a pillow top on it i'm good <laughs> like <laughs> don't sink it to the floor the so, floor plenty yeah. strong i'm right. good <laughs> it's all it's all improvement it's all improvement 
Absolutely. Um, but the Saints trying to make some improvements. How you like that one? How you like that I transition? I love that. That was good. That was good. <laughs> you, know, you know, a segue a segue is only as good as how proud you are to point it out. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was just mm, smooth. <laughs> so the Saints pick up linebacker Quan Alexander from the 49ers, give up Kiko Alonso and a conditional fifth rounder. Feels like a steal. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, it, it all comes down to, to Quan's performance. Obviously, he's coming off of a high ankle sprain. He has some injury history over his time. His time in Tampa Bay, you know, made the Saints very familiar with him, playing against him twice a year. Kiko Alonso was a guy that, you know, tore an ACL at the end of last season, late in the season, wasn't able to get healthy before this year, started off the season on the physically unable to perform list, not able to get back out on the field. They had just activated his 21 day or three week practice window that he had. They, they essentially had that time to work him out and see if he can get back to the active roster. Clearly he wasn't going to get there. They don't play a lot. The saints, they don't play a lot of three linebacker sets to where you're going to see a strong side linebacker on the field. That's what Quan Alexander does. Excuse me. That's what Kiko Alonso does. I'm going to do that several times. If I'm <laughs> trying to talk about Anzalone and Alonzo, or if I'm talking about Quan and Kiko, I'm going to mess it up. But um, Kiko, you know, he's your strong side run defender, and that's not really a guy that sees the field very often uh, for the Saints. And so you make this trade, you bring in Quan Alexander, who does the things well that you need coverage over the middle of the field. He can be a part of the run game. He has some missed tackle concerns. I think he has the, the most missed tackles since he was drafted in the NFL. I think he's four ahead in that category, despite missing upwards of 30 plus games. But you look at what it is that he brings to you as somebody that can be valuable in coverage that can produce an obvious passing downs that could be another coverage linebacker alongside demario davis it makes sense why the saints said you know what we're going from one guy that's probably not going to pan out to another guy that might not pan out but that gives us a boost where we need it versus a boost where we don't necessarily need it so it'll be interesting to see how that competition goes now between quan alexander and alex anzalone who has seen his snaps start to decrease so far here over the season and see if uh, quan can end up picking up that weak side linebacker role by the time that the saints host the San Francisco 49ers, who they just traded to get Quan Alexander over here in week 10, maybe a little bit of a revenge game going on at that point. Yeah. And the thing is if Alonzo wasn't going to play and all you have to give up is a fifth round pick for a guy who is a former pro bowler. And if he is healthy, like you said, if he can stay healthy, can be a difference maker. Um, and then his contract on top yeah. of that, makes it a, it's a no risk contract essentially for the saints. They can let him go and, and have no hit on the cap at the end of this year. Right. Um, if, but he has the potential, if he's healthy, he could have the same kind of impact that Janoris Jenkins had on the saints defense last year. Yeah. I, I think that this is one of those signings or excuse me, trades that just, it made a ton of sense. I mean, even the fifth round pick is conditional and it's based on game time. It's based on play time. So if, Quan Alexander's injury flares back up and he can't get out on the field. No loss of that pick for the Saints for this season. Uh, if they get him out on the field but keep him below his, his snap threshold and find that he's not the product that they wanted, then he doesn't see the field anymore and they go back to Alex Anzalone for the rest of the season. And then all of that other money to where you know the, the 49ers wanted to offload, which is that you know $12.55 million base salary in 2021, $12.65 in 2022, that's all non-guaranteed. The Saints don't 
take that on if they don't want to. They can they can cut him at the end of the season, as you said. They cut off Scott Free there. So I think that that's a big part of why the Saints were willing to make this move because the Saints aren't often active at the trade deadline. They have been over the last few years. They traded to get Eli Apple, which for that season in 2017 actually gave them a really nice boost on the defensive side. And then you also saw them very active at the trade deadline in trying to get Emmanuel Sanders last year. And then now this year they bring in Quan Alexander, who could be, as you mentioned, like that late signing for Janoris Jenkins. He could be like that trade deadline trade for Eli Apple that gives them a little bit of a boost, at least for that season. And then there's no commitment to, you know, move on with him long-term or anything of that sort moving forward. And for a team that doesn't value picks, giving up a fifth rounder, even if no matter what, is just okay. I mean, yeah. we've seen this team just discard draft picks plenty, and they don't need, you know, as long as they're trying to re-sign a lot of this core, they don't need a lot of the bottom feeder picks because they're not going to make the roster, and the Saints feel confident also in their ability to find undrafted free agents who will contribute. Right. Remember, this is a team that was willing to give up a second-round pick and a player at the beginning of the season or rewrite the NFL rulebook to get Jadavion Clowney, who has not panned out for Tennessee at all, by the way. Um, so maybe dodged a bullet there a little bit. But you know, they were willing to give up a second-round pick. Now they turn around and get a boost in the middle of the field, potentially, uh, in Quan Alexander for a fifth-round pick and a guy they were never going to have on the field in the first place, more than likely, because even ahead of Kiko Alonso, you've already seen Caden Ellis take snaps at that strong side position, as well as, of course, the third-round rookie, Zach Bond, who they invested highly in and now want to see pan out. And, of course, they're taking their time with him, not just because he's not grasping the playbook, but simply that's not the defense that the Saints are playing. It's The Saints are playing nickel-and-dime defense. That's what they're doing. That's what their base is this year. Mm-hmm. So not really going into that three-linebacker set. So what do you need Kiko Alonso around for outside of depth when you already have depth? So this is a good move for them. They also spent the entire season without him on the roster already anyway, so they already know that they can produce without him. So the big question now for the Saints is, how does this improve the defense and how does Quan Alexander actually contribute to the issues that you're having over on the defensive side? Because most people perceive the issues as being in the secondary, myself included, but the Saints can use some help over the middle of the field because that's where the ball moves for any NFL offense. Yes, you can point to seven plays of over 40 yards, but that's on a very small percentage of over 200. I think it's 240 passing attempts Mm -hmm. so far this season against the Saints. The majority of those 240 passing attempts, however, have been completed and have been, you know, put over the middle of the field. You look at just the middle of the field within 15 yards, the Saints have given up a 107 passer rating and a 70% completion percentage with a couple of touchdowns in the middle of the field there. The NFL uh, average is 102 passer rating. So they're above average there. They're allowing above average completion percentage and success there as the 29th team in the measure of success by football outsiders, which is DVOA over the middle of the field and in the short area. So that's a place where they need that help. And if they can limit the production over the middle of the field, what that ends up doing is that it keeps opposing offenses out of position to take shots down the field just beyond the 50-yard line. If you can eliminate that 25-yard or even 35-yard portion of the field between the 25-yard line and the 40-yard line on the opposite side, that keeps them away from that green or money zone that teams are looking to be a part of. And another thing is, Let's just compare Demario Davis and Quan Alexander. There are a mm-hmm. lot of similarities in them Big physically, uh, the way that they play. If if Demario and Quan can build a kind of relationship, and you know, 
harness those same skills. If he, DeMario can teach him how to make that leap right. um, in a way, I, I think it would be the, the pairing there physically is very good. Again, it's all yeah. about potential and what the, what the upside may be. But even at the floor, if he's healthy, and that's always going to be the thing with Quan, is the floor is still pretty solid. Yeah. And Quan, this is going to be the first time in a long time to where he has a mentor as opposed to mentoring mm-hmm. these younger linebackers that are coming in, the Jerry Greenlaws, the Fred Warners, the Devin Whites. It, this is a kind of a, a nice change of pace for Quan too, to come into, you know, this is, I mean, for lack of better terms, like this is the Jameis Winston position for Quan Alexander in that he's finally coming into a mentorship opportunity as opposed to being the the number one guy, or the number two guy, him and Levante David, of course, in Tampa Bay were mm-hmm. fantastic together. And so I, I think you have to keep that in mind. And the other thing to keep in mind too, is that Demario Davis has struggled in coverage as well. So if you end up getting, and, and particularly to uh, tight ends and, and running backs, 13 receptions, two yards, 90, I'm sorry, two touchdowns and 96 yards allowed just over the first five games of this season by Demario Davis. And so I think that this is something that you can look at to where Quan Alexander doesn't take DeMario Davis's role, but if they can be multiple in terms of sharing responsibilities, then that's where you can see a little bit of a defense. You saw the pass interference penalty on third and 12 that led to the touchdown to Darnell Mooney against the Bears, which was the difference between later on down the road, the Chicago Bears having to kick a field goal to tie the game as opposed to score a touchdown to tie the game where the Saints have been actually very good uh, late or so far late in games over the past couple of games. And so I think you look at something like that to where DeMario Davis has a little bit of trouble turning his head. He has a little bit of trouble with uh, those type the, the hesitation from the tight end. Who's clearly going to take him up the seam. If you're able to swap the roles there, to where he is playing on the slot receiver that is taking the break. And then Quan Alexander maybe is carried the tight end down the seam, which he does very well. That's an advantage for you if you get the Quan Alexander that you're looking for. We have to remember, too, that the Saints before this season had the exact same linebacking core that they have right now, and they brought in Nigel Bradham for the very same reason. And now they trade for Quan Alexander, who essentially achieves the same thing, but is 26 years old and and has a lot more of that athleticism left in his range. So let's um, look at a couple of things. The trade deadline goes, no receivers added, no DBs added, but I didn't see a great market out there for the Saints to go out and reach to grab anything. They didn't, there was nothing on the roster that I would have given up in that position to bring in any of the corners or receivers who would have been available. No, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, you might have been able to make a move for uh, Desmond King, but it, at that point, is that really your, your area where you're lacking? Are you really lacking in the slot? I know CJ Garner Johnson has had some tough snaps there, but he has a very short memory and he's continued to make great plays and to play very well at that position. So are you then actually hurting the team by addition and benching a player that has been a bit of a, I mean, he's been, I mean, if nothing else, he's going to get you 15 yards because he's going to draw, you know, a couple of swings, you know what I mean? But, you know, but he brings that energy, which is something that Quan Alexander does really well too, you know, so the, the focus on energy makes a lot of sense for the Saints. And then if you were to go out there and let's just say, make this big trade first round pick and a player to bring Stefan Gilmore over to New Orleans, do you bench your first round draft pick in, in Marshall Lattimore, who you've invested so highly in and 
actually had a little bit of a turnaround in this last game? Or do you bench Norris Jenkins, who's been your most valuable corner, who clearly has a great relationship amongst the secondary because he got more into that fight than CJ Gardner-Johnson actually got into it? Or you know, what do you even do in that situation? Have you just given up an early first-round pick, which teams will overvalue, of course, because you'll take potential overproven any time in the NFL for whatever reason. But if that's the case, what do you, what else, what other issues do you end up creating locker room wise, but making a move like that? Same thing with safeties. If you were looking to give up a conditional fifth round pick, you weren't getting Anthony Harris. You weren't getting Harrison Smith from the Minnesota Vikings who are looking to stack up as much draft capital as possible right now, this season, they weren't going to take something that could turn into a 2022 fifth round pick. That just wasn't going to happen. And so the market just really wasn't there for what the Saints were willing to give up. They will always play this smartly. They don't want to overpay. And so I, I think that what the move that they did make made a lot of sense. And now you're seeing all these veterans that the other teams couldn't trade get released anyway. And so now there's another free agent market that maybe the Saints could dip into if they so chose. But Ted Ginn is not one of those people. No, no, no. Let's just be clear. I said it, like, the first thing I said this morning was don't even think about it, Saints fans. Let yeah. it go. I, I, I wouldn't be – I mean, I'll never say never, of course, because, you know, they've brought back Austin Carr. They've brought back Tommy Lee Lewis. Ted Ginn Jr., I feel like if he's somebody – if he was somebody that the Saints ended up calling, it's for the practice squad for as an emergency person that knows the system. But – I don't even think that's going to happen yep. for, for that point, point. I think you call Dante Pettis, who plays a similar role to Ted Ginn Jr., has shorter hands and isn't afraid to catch a punt. And why take age at this point either? Right. When, you, when you've already invested in all these young receivers that you keep bringing back, like you keep mm-hmm. cycling them through, either, either let them play and invest in them or don't. I mean, bringing back Ted Ginn to me is, again, those messages that get sent. If you bring certain players in, what are you saying to the rest of your team? Because these guys don't want to be told that they're not good enough. Right. Not not this year. They just, especially coming off this Bears game, as we're about to get into, that's that's not the message you want to send to these guys. You basically basically just told Traquan Smith he was a better option and a better fit for your team than the veteran Ted Ginn Jr., Traquan Smith has come out and outperformed his expectations so far just based upon the fair expectations you could have for him based upon his first two seasons in the NFL. Resigning Ted Ginn Jr. and then finding somewhere to put him amongst the top four wide receivers, top five wide receivers you already have in Michael Thomas, Emmanuel Sanders, Traquan Smith, Marquez Calloway, and of course Deontay Harris, who people aren't talking about enough. Where do you put Ted Ginn Jr. in there? And like you said, if you do, the message that you send is not nearly enough of a risk for the level of production that you're going to gain, which is kind of net zero at that point. And we're still maybe a couple of weeks away from the return of Ty Montgomery, who will yes. also add something to that offense if he's good to mm-hmm. go. So yep, there's point. no reason to me for them to have made that reach. Um, so let's go to the Saints game. Another win that wasn't pretty. Had no business going into overtime. Right. Just plain and simple. <laughs> the game had no business being an overtime game. But, hey, you keep leaders, keep pace with the leaders in your conference. And that's all you can do right now if you're the New Orleans Saints. As long mm-hmm. as you're keeping pace, they don't judge you on style points. This isn't college football. Right, right. Yeah, and I think that that's the most important part. This is now the Saints' fourth straight win, third straight win of three points. 
And so you're seeing them win these tough games. You're not seeing the big blowout that you usually see every now and then for the Saints team. A lot of that just simply has to do with the defense. I kept saying that if the Saints lose this game to Chicago, it's because they gave Chicago an offense and they gave them that offense early. The big 50-yard play, the big 24-yard touchdown, the big runs that you saw David Montgomery break up. But then as we've seen over these last few, uh, over these last few games, We've seen the Saints defense tighten up more and more over the game. They weren't able to do so at a point. They kind of shot themselves in the foot with that third down, third and 12 penalty that we just talked about. If that ends up, if they end up tightening up there and holding Chicago to a field goal, we're talking about a very different game because I, I have a lot of trouble believing that Chicago would have been able to drive back down the field and score a touchdown late as opposed to the field goal that they were able to get off to tie it up. So I think that that's something to keep in mind. And I think that too, even in overtime, the Saints defense had to make two stops in overtime and they did it. I mean, they did a good job there. I mean, this wasn't a, a situation where there was some type of a fluke or anything like that. They put the ball back in their offense's hands and, and were able to make that stop. Excuse me, they didn't have two stops, but they, they had to get the ball back for, right. their, for their offense. And so you saw the big third down sack by Trey Hendrickson. Again, a drive vendor in overtime, those are huge. And that play had a lot to do with coverage downfield, which was actually spectacular. Uh, P.J. Williams making a great read, passing off Allen Robinson to C.J. Gardner-Johnson over the middle of the field before running to contain Nick Foles because I was ready for another unathletic, double-digit yard scramble for a first down. I was ready for it. I was ready for my, my Ryan Fitzpatrick play of the day. But P.J. Williams makes a great play. Malcolm Jenkins makes a great play. Knowing that Anthony Miller is going to turn upfield, he continues that coverage and then bites down, and then Trey Hendrickson's able to get that sack. And if Trey Hendrickson was able to do it, Marcus Davenport was there who had a fantastic game. I just think that this was a really good example of the Saints just continuing to do what they've done over the last few, the last few games. They, they haven't scored over 20, they haven't scored over 30 points or 30 points or more, but one of those three games, but they've been consistent 30 points, 27 points, 26 points. The Saints offensive output is going to be what it's going to be. And hopefully we'll get a little bit better with some of these other players returning, but they're not in a bad situation offensively at all. Now it's just about the defense allowing fewer points, right? Can you hold to 24 points? Um, yeah, I would stay, still say. Anytime you end up having Drew Reese throw 41 times, something has gone awry. And part of that to me is, again, you were getting great production on the ground. And mm -hmm. when you have the lead, you want to go downhill. This is – it's not – you know, I, I, I was on Roe Brown's show the other day, and I had mm -hmm. a fan basically yell at me because, you know, he said, well, the, the running game was left in the 80s. Leave that stuff in the 80s. That's not how you win anymore. Well, the top 13 teams in the league in rushing yards, 11 of them are serious playoff contenders. Right. It's, and it's not an accident. The Saints are 14th in the league with a very good yards per carry. Mm -hmm. If they increase that just a bit, I think that you, again, take that pressure off the defense. Take the pressure off Breeze. He's throwing 41 times outdoors. That's taxing. And, yeah. and, and Chicago, especially, is a very tough environment to throw that many times in. Yeah. And so I just, as they, once they got that lead, it felt like they weren't able to sustain enough drives to take enough time off the clock. Even if you're not scoring, it's about just getting those, that yardage, a couple of first downs a drive and keeping that clock churning. And I think you, you keep 
Alvin Kamara, who still had another great game. Mm-hmm. But it felt like he could have had more touches. It felt like Latavius Murray had opportunities for more touches where the Saints threw a few times too many. Yeah, I think they were there, but we also saw Chicago step up impressively against the run game as the game went on. Uh, Chicago got better in the run game as the Saints got less productive in the run game. That's often how that works. But you you saw them with eight-man boxes, seven-man boxes. You saw them start to stack the box. And so in those cases, the Saints aren't going to run the ball. Sean Payton's not going to do that because he knows they're going to lose yardage. He knows that he puts his team at risk when that happens. It's, it's, it's a proven thing that, you know, for the saints that when they try to do that, it doesn't really work out for them. And so they had to diversify the offense a little bit more. And we have to keep in mind too, not to defend it, but we have to keep in mind too, that the 41 passing attempts is, is swollen by two possessions in overtime. Yes. You know what I mean? Which is, is, which is usually treated as passing, you know, that's a passing game situation for any team. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so, so that, that is worth mentioning. But, but as you mentioned, this game had no business going to overtime in the first place, so you could have saved that by better play in the run game earlier on. So it's not that these things aren't all connected, but there are certain contextual things that you know, uh, might be a factor. But I think, you're, I think you're absolutely right, though, that the run game was gotten away from in this game by the Saints offense. Surprise, surprise. Uh, but there were some valid reasons for it. And for the most part, everything that they were running in the passing game was essentially an extension of the run game. I mean, they didn't throw their first pass to uh, a a wide receiver until well into this game, you know, second quarter, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was like eight minutes or something left Mm -hmm. in the second quarter by that point. And so we saw a lot of attention to the backs and the flats, the screen game, you know, tight ends and and short area throws, things like that. So I think that that also swelled that up quite a bit. And again, Drew Brees having another very productive two-minute drive at the end of the first quarter, scoring their fifth touchdown within one minute in a row uh, this season. And you know, a lot of those within the last 10 seconds of yes. a quarter yeah. or a half. Yeah. Which, uh, and so, yeah, that's just let, – let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, Brees was, was Brees. It, right. You know, it wasn't – I wouldn't say it was one of his – you know, the great all-time great performances, but it's what Drew Brees does. He did what he does, but was, again, spectacular in those two-minute situations and made completions when he had to make completions. Got a lot of guys involved, as, as, as you said, too. So I think he marshaled that game as well as he could have. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we get a lot of people, too, that ask, I'm sure you've gotten the question as well, about, well, why don't the Saints just – play like that all the time in terms of the two-minute drill, you can't. It's a very different game situation to where you're forcing the defense to stay on the field in the same personnel so that you know what you're going up against. And you can't do that throughout the rest of the game. There's pacing to be concerned about, and then there's also just general rules to be concerned about as well. And so that type of of offense doesn't work in the NFL outside of that two-minute drill to where you have a possession and you're ready. You can run hurry up. I mean that, but you're not going to run the no same huddle, type. yeah. Yeah, but you're not going to get the same type of production that you're going to get at the end of the first quarter, where substitutions are limited, where players have been worn down, all those other things that are a part of it. So that's one of the big things. And so you'll see them play a lot of prevent defense and get stuck and forced into playing a lot of prevent defense, and that's why all of a sudden these middle of the field areas are wide open for these plays. Uh, one of the other plays that I'll point out too 
was the final play of the first quarter was the 47 yard pass to Alvin Kamara on the angle route, their favorite route that in terms of Drew Brees, well, one of their favorite routes that that option route is, is mm-hmm. really nice for them too. But Drew Brees and Alvin Kamara are very comfortable with that route. And they ended up setting up that play, the possession before. And that's another thing in terms of like the game strategy that has to be taken into consideration is that if you run a ton of hurry up, you don't get the opportunity to set yourself up for success later. The drive there's you, limited, you've, because of right. your personnel in hurry up, you are limiting your options by necessity. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so you can't, you can't force yourself to run with this, especially this team that likes to really vary up personnel packages, which they did very well in this game, despite the fact that they were down three people and three starters in an outdoor game and a cold weather game, which usually limits the amount of personnel packages that you use. They ended up using a ton of personnel packages a season high, according to Nick Underhill. So you look at the way that this team sets itself up. You don't really have the opportunity to just say, all right, let's go out there and run hurry up because that's not what this team or any team in the NFL is built upon doing because then you're really just leaving everything to chance. Yeah. The only team and the last team to really do that was Peyton Manning, but that's, but they were, the Colts were so consistent in formation. Mm -hmm. It was the same people on offense, every play. And the, the, the dominance of that offense was in the fact that they could run it so precisely without a huddle. It wasn't in the fact that, like you said, with a Sean Payton offense, which is built on fooling the defense and is right. built on changing personnel packages to give certain guys advantages, you cannot run a two-minute drill consistently right. and put and get in an opportunity to say, okay, now I need Latavius Murray. Now I need right. Alvin Kamara. Now I got to line Kamara outside and put it back in the backfield. Now I got to – you can't do right. any of those things if you're running a no huddle. And like you said, the defense's mentality is so different. It's just unless you're going to keep your packages exactly the same, which is incredibly difficult if you don't have Peyton Manning, that receiver who will not be named, Reggie Wayne, Dallas Clark, and Edger <laughs> right. James, or you know those kind of people behind you. So it's just, yeah, it doesn't make sense. And people always do no. that. It's like, oh, let's run two minutes all the time. No, you can't. No, yeah, no. you can't do that. And, and also the defense isn't going to respond the same way. Like the no. defense is going to send pressure. The defense is going to be able to vary in those earlier situations where you're running no huddle in a way that they can't afford to vary at the end of the two minutes because the, the mentality at the end of two minutes is don't let them score. The mentality before that is beat the hell out of the quarterback or, or, or whatever it might be. Like the mentality is wildly different in those situations. So game situation dictates the play call. And that's an example of why you can't really just run two minute all game. And both sides are trying to figure out the clock because timeouts are in play at that point out of bounds. The barrier is so much different, you know, utilizing the barrier to conserve time. All those things are unlike what's going to happen in the first 13 minutes of a quarter. It's It's just different. Yeah, absolutely. And I, w- I will say too that, you know, we're talking about the personnel packages and, and what the, you know, what those Peyton Manning offenses were able to do. You're certainly not going to see that from a team that's down three of its four top receivers, uh, you know, in, in the game either. No, it, it, no, that's not going <laughs> to, it's just too yeah. much. In fact, we shouldn't see them doing what they did down three of their four. And that's part of what makes that two minute drill so precise and so so impressive is because they can continue to do that despite the fact that Drew Brees is working with a different variation of receivers all five of these weeks and that's what and Sean Payton's part of his offensive um, package is just knowing where to create lanes for Brees to get anybody a couple yards right it doesn't matter how talented that receiver is the play is going to be constructed that somebody 
is in enough space to do something. It's just mm-hmm. if Drew can make the read and you get to your spot, he's going to find you. Yeah. Now, that's not always going to be – it's not always going to lead to a touchdown, but generally speaking, he's going to find you, whether it's yep. five yards or 10 or 15, whatever. So, yeah. um, Taysom Hill, I, I, you know, I, I have my things with Taysom, but Taysom was productive. It and was. I know people now – now the switch comes and everybody oh, – more touches so, for Taysom. Right. No, that was a one-shot deal. Here's what I'll say about what we learned about Taysom is that when it works, it works. And what I mean by that is that when the run game, you know, when he actually produces in the run game, it takes a little bit of the attention off of him in the passing game because then they get a little bit focused on what is he going to do when he's on the field as a runner. And then you end up lining him up out wide. He drew extremely soft coverage in that moment because of the expectation that was set up in terms of the previous times where he was on the fields, where it's like, he's on the field, but he's not getting these passing targets. Like that's not what he's doing. And so that ended up setting up that post route for the touchdown on the very, very soft coverage that he was given by Chicago. Uh, I don't think that this means more touches for Taysom. I think it could mean more opportunities for him maybe down the road. Uh, But I I think that it's, I, I still feel like that has to come down to the, receiving game more than him lining up at quarterback, if that makes sense. And I think Alvin's games set up those things too. Yeah. Is that you, the bears knew who the weapon was and you give Taysom opportunities because you cannot afford to let Alvin Kamara make big plays. So yeah, that's, those are opportunities for Taysom because yeah, you you have to give your attention to somebody else. And so if you're giving Taysom Hill one-on-one matchups, there are people that he can beat that, you know, he is athletic enough to do that, but to think that, and my my good friend, Hank Brady, I love him to death, but my man to say that he's the third or fourth best skilled player on offense. I'm like, no, that's just, no, that's just not the case. And uh, yeah. if you could go through yeah. the list, it's it's not hard to do for me. But right. yeah, I think folks overestimate because of his relationship between touchdowns to touches, which right. is inflated because of when he gets the ball. Right. Yeah, we saw the same thing with uh, Traquan Smith last year. We don't hear the same argument for Traquan Smith because the the fanfare is is different when you know Taysom Hill is doing something unique. Traquan Smith is playing his position effectively. And let's not forget that Traquan Smith caught five touchdowns on what, 25 catches, 20 catches last season. And so it's relatively the same rate and actually playing at his position without being anything unexpected. But because Taysom is something that is unexpected because he carries the designation of a quarterback, then all of a sudden he becomes the more talented option of the two, which isn't necessarily the case. No, it isn't. And so let's go to the defensive side. Mm-hmm. They did get consistent. No, they got good pressure at certain times. Yeah. And they came through, especially in the second half. And like you said, those big moments where they got pressures or sacks. Um, but they're still giving up the big play. We mm-hmm. talked about Darnell Mooney last week that he was yep. the exact same time receiver that gives the same trouble. And he did it to them. And then, of course, Allen Robinson had some big catches as well. It's not just the 40-yarders. It's the consistent 20-yarders as well. Right. That communication is still lacking, even with Marshawn Lattimore having statistically his best game of the season. Yes, yeah, and that's an important designation, right? Statistically his best game. He certainly got a little bit better after he got the interception given to him. Let's not pretend like that was about his being in position or being in coverage. That was about Nick Foles' inaccuracy paired with aggressiveness, giving 
Marshall Lattimore an opportunity he was able to make good on. He almost had another one where he was playing over the top, but thankfully he didn't intercept it because it actually gave them better field possession. And so it's, it's, it, you, you have to sort of take with a grain of salt each of those individual standout plays, each of those individual you know, bad plays. And then you have to look at everything in between. It's kind of like, you know, in, in uh, performance poetry, we do five grades and then we drop the high, drop the low, and then we add up the middle. You got to do the same thing when it comes to these. And what you're seeing consistently in the middle of those plays is bad production from the Saints secondary and bad communication from the Saints secondary. I know everybody wants to say it doesn't really feel like it's a communication issue and everything like that. But when you're having trouble passing one player from one zone to another or from one player to another, or you're not matching correctly and, you know, one person's supposed to take the inside route, the other's supposed to take the outside route and both go with the outside route. It's a communication thing. Eye discipline is also a big issue. We saw that in Darnell Mooney's touchdown. Janoris Jenkins just kind of watching the play develop as opposed to reacting to the play develop. So he was a little slow on that one. Um, I think that touchdown technically, though, gets credited to Marshawn Lattimore, who was late getting over to that side of the field and in position. So there's all of these things that kind of add up, and that's a communication issue. If you line up on the wrong side of the field, then something wasn't communicated effectively or something wasn't received effectively. So you, you still have to look at communication. You have to look at execution. You have to look at eye discipline, all these other things that have continuously been issues for the Saints secondary, not just this year, but beyond that. So I think that we're very, very close to the point to where we have to stop talking just about, we have to talk about the player execution, no matter what, because we see these players tighten up toward the end of a game when they feel the pressure. And that's a good thing, but you want to establish a better baseline than what you're establishing earlier on in games. So you do have to talk about player execution, but eventually coaching uh, translation, all these other things have to come into question because you're seeing consistent issues. And I'm not just pointing at Dennis Allen. I know a lot of people would like to, but you have to look at the position coaches that actually teach the, the design that teach the, the game plan as well. And the technique and the fundamentals, they teach all that. Dennis Allen is calling a pretty good game. He's calling cover two in, in putting players in position to stop, you know, plays over, uh, you know, on the outside, he's putting, you know, he's calling Tampa two when he needs some extra defense in the middle. So the, 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 the game calls, the game plan is usually fine. Excuse me. The play calling is usually the right call. It's just usually a lack of execution. And at some point we have to not only take into account the execution on the player side, but also the, the fundamental coaching over on that coaching side as well. Yeah. You have not seen, the activity out of the Saints defense that we, you know, just that pre-snap. Right. I, you know, there just hasn't been that. And um, that, that was a hallmark of that defense last season is that they were constantly, you know, there was a lot of communication. It felt like right. with that defense last season. Um, and, and we've talked about leadership too, is Cam Jordan's got to step up and, and, you know, and be the guy who holds the unit accountable. But on each level, this is what Malcolm Jenkins is, is supposed to be right. doing, is holding guys – he's supposed to be the guy telling you to stay in your techniques. He's supposed to be the guy who's telling everybody and making sure that before those pre-snap reads, you know you've got this, I've got your back here. Those things aren't happening because, like you said, there's too many of those pass-offs where people are expecting right. one person to do something and the other one is expecting somebody to do something else, and you've got a receiver running free. And that that's – Every week it's persistent. And that, yeah, like that, that's a breakdown on multiple levels. 
Yeah. I mean, you can even look at the big 50 yard pass to Darnell Mooney. That was a, a you, you can look at a couple of different things in that play. First of all, Janoris Jenkins just simply gets beat. Darnell Mooney's fast as hell. Like it, he's yes. going to beat you. If he beats you off the line, you're beat down the field, but he's also playing a little bit of outside leverage because he expects to have a single high safety over the middle, which Marcus Williams, that was a role that he couldn't fill in that situation because uh, Marshall and Lattimore passed off Malcolm, uh, excuse me, uh, Allen Robinson over the middle. So Malcolm, or Marcus Williams had to play down while two players followed another receiver up the left side of the field, which opened up the middle of the field for the deep pass. And so even just those pieces of communication to where no one necessarily did anything wrong, it was just one of those route combinations that took advantage of communication over the middle of the field where maybe had something gone a little bit differently. You know, Marshall and Lattimore tracking somebody over the, Allen Robinson over the middle of the field, there's still a chance that that gets completed, but that's the difference between a 20-some-odd-yard catch and a 50-some-odd-yard catch. And so I, I think that even those moments where it's not necessarily a communication breakdown, it's just about you know, what assignment is most important in that moment, it's going to get taken advantage of. That's part of what NFL offenses do. They take advantage of those situations. We saw the same thing where uh, Marsha, excuse me, Marcus Williams bit down on the mill concept, which led to one of the deep touchdowns or one of the deep passes uh, against them earlier on this season. And so we, we've seen this work and other and teams will continue to do it. Yep. They absolutely will. Um, let's talk about Jason Wims and CJ Gardner Johnson. <laughs> So CJ is getting a rep in the locker room, right? In the NFL, um, I certainly am always been a proponent of people who are agitators. Mm -hmm. um, in some regard, every team needs one. Um, but I thought his comments were very interesting, <laughs> both in discussing what happened on the field of Chicago, um, because to me, you really got to make a man mad so that he stops in the middle of gameplay knowing there's no fans knowing there's none of this going on and you walk up on a guy you tap him you pull at him you punch him once give it a couple seconds pause punch him again that's that's not the result of trash talk something right. went beyond that and i don't know if if cj gardner johnson broke a rule i'm not saying that I don't know right. if you spit on him or not. I can't. I, I didn't see it, so I don't know. And yeah. you don't see a lot of things on television that happen. Right. But something happened more than what he said. Yeah. And Evan Sachs did a really good breakdown on Twitter of, of what was at least seen in the broadcast, and it was fantastic. But, you know, from what we can tell, C.J. Garner-Johnson ripped off his mouthpiece at one point. That mouthpiece gets flung out, and the, even the announcers talked about that mouthpiece was on the ground for minutes, and so they, you had the precursor at that moment. And then Wims sat on the bench for 11 minutes and then came back, and then the very next opportunity he got out on the field, he went after C.J. Garner-Johnson. And it was just an odd situation uh, because even after that, Wims came out of it as if he had won that altercation or won that moment. And it's like, no, you actually just kind of made an ass of yourself and you've done nothing for your team. You've done nothing but hurt yourself. And so whatever happened, happened, and it doesn't and, – and even, like, look, I'm not going to say that spitting on somebody doesn't necessitate that type of reaction, but usually if you have 11 minutes to sit down and chill out, you're not going to just come out on field knowing the repercussions and just lay into somebody. So whatever happened, happened, but the bottom line is that the Javon Wims – decision was odd altogether 
Um, and CJ Garner Johnson just keeps getting under people's skin one way or another. Because remember, he also pissed off Danny Amendola, of all people, who like never gets, never gets mad. He was in CJ Garner's face during the, uh, during the Detroit Lions game. And so this is just who CJ Garner Johnson is. He doesn't see himself as an agitator. He doesn't see himself as a trash talker. And maybe that's the absolute right mentality he has to have because he feels like whatever he's doing is not a problem. And that means he's going to continue to do it. And so he's, and remember that play happened. And then you saw a couple of false starts. You saw a delay of game, then the very next possession, or then you saw the interception, like this, that, that all of that moment. That cost the bears a chance to win. A it, big it time. Really did. Yeah, it was a big time lack of composure for the Bears over and over and over again, um, including that moment. And so it worked. The, the mental, you know, getting, you know, it's the, it's the Cortland Finnegan approach of just like getting under somebody's skin. Um, <laughs> you know, and it, it wasn't a repeat of the Andre Johnson situation, but it was probably the closest that we've gotten since then, aside from the big brawl that broke out a few days ago. But, I mean, this was this is something C.J. Gardner-Johnson, I think, is just going to continue to be a part of his game. And then the way he responded to the situation with Mike Thomas, too, was kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I'm not going to talk about it. And then he talked about it. Yeah, it's the same and- thing as what we saw with Michael Thomas when he was like, I'm not here to set any rumor straight. And then he set room, you know, and then he, he like, this is what they do all the time. I love it. So, it, uh, you know, I, I, and we talked about this last week. I don't feel this is something that's going to linger in the Saints locker room between those two guys. Those are just two highly competitive guys. And you're in practice. That stuff happens. You're in the locker room. That stuff happens. Um, I hope CJ Gardner Johnson ain't going around spitting on people because you're going <laughs> to run into the wrong person. Right. That's, you yeah. know, you're going to run into the wrong person. And yeah. Derek, Bill Romanowski found out about what it was like to, when you start spitting <laughs> on folks. That's true. That's true. But he has – there is a role for – they need someone with that edge right now, and yep. especially in that secondary. You have to get somebody who's going to make people aware of their presence. And at the very least, teams know where he is. Yeah. And you're seeing – like, the team is also – I don't know if you noticed this, but in the Chicago – even the secondary players were just hitting harder. Yes. Like, say what you want about the coverage, the tackling and actually laying hits. They went, I mean, they went low on Jimmy Graham a lot. It was really interesting, but. And those guys him. don't know him. Right. They have like, no none of these guys know him except for like Cam. <laughs> it's like, it's not right. a bunch of guys who have been around him. Right. It was just, I guess they saw the first tackle by Marcus Williams work and then they were just like, okay, that's how I tackle that guy. Cut him low. And that's it. (laughs) And so, you know, like you saw the defense hitting harder. You did see a little bit more of that competitive edge amongst the secondary throughout this game. And so maybe that, that permeating through isn't a bad thing as long as, you know, so not control. everybody doesn't start spitting on everybody, yeah. but you know what I mean? But you know, if, get it's, the penalties. if it's right. But if they're creating the, that competitive edge and they're getting something that we really don't really see from this team, we see this team get pumped up when it comes to the secondary, when it comes to pass breakups, we see them get pumped up for interceptions, but now, you know, we've seen them start to get pumped up over like the big hits, the big tackles, things like that. And so that's, and that's something Quan Alexander is going to bring to this team as well. Because there's literally he is not a, a play. Yes. Ooh. Yeah. He's he, and that's one of the reasons why he misses so many tackles is because of how aggressive he is. And because of the fact that he goes out there and he does it. One of the things that's really interesting too, is that the 49ers this season have uh, in terms of the percentage of tackles that have assists only 43.6% on a larger 
uh, scale number of tackles. For the Saints, 45.3% on a smaller number of tackles. So a greater portion of a lesser amount get assists. So that's something else that will help Quan Alexander because he's going to want to hit people. He is aggressive. He will over-pursue, but if he has the help that the Saints are better at giving than the San Francisco 49ers, again, a larger percentage on a smaller sample size, that's good news for the Saints and good news for Quan Alexander. Um, when do you think we see four consistent quarters out of this team? Because they've got to do that against Tampa. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to play. This, this is the, the biggest test so far of the season for them um, and – what a 2-0 sweep of Tampa could mean for them. It's essentially, it could likely be the division decider and a home field advantage decider this game. Yep, then that would be huge for them because they've split the common opponent so far. Yeah, Tampa Bay beat Green Bay, Green Bay beat New Orleans, but New Orleans beat Chicago, who beat Green Bay. So, I'm sorry, who beat Tampa Bay. And so if they can get another sweep like they did last season, which is actually uncharacteristic of, this yes. team, of these teams, they usually historically split then that would be – that's huge for the Saints and their playoff hopes going down to – getting down to the playoffs. And so this is a game that already – again, here we are week nine with humongous playoff implications because of how competitive this division is. And so that puts them on pace to really have the best-case scenario moving forward. Right now, they're already in their best-case scenario. In terms of what exists for them right now, they're in their best-case scenario. But getting this win against Tampa – would be huge into furthering that. Does it end their season if they lose? Not at all. Because again, they split common opponents and they've split, and in that case, they would have split their, their matchups. It's just that you look at Tampa Bay's schedule, you look at New Orleans' schedule, New Orleans wants to win this game. Because in division, you still have to go to Carolina. You still right. have two games with Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, and Atlanta, for whatever it's worth, at least they've been competitive with Raheem Morris. And right them playing the saints is never predictable. Right. So, right. We can't, we can't ever make any assumptions about divisional games. You know, you, you and, can't, and we you know all those away. places are difficult for the saints to go to. Saints yeah. at Carolina yeah. is never easy. Saints right. at Tampa is never easy. Um, and saints at Atlanta, they're actually better at Atlanta better on the road Atlanta than they are at home. home. <laughs> 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 but again, like that's the thing you have to wipe the expectations away. You have to wipe away record. You have to wipe, wipe away home versus versus away. You have to wipe all that away because it's, a, it's, it's a divisional game. You don't know what to expect. And, the Saints also have bigger games toward the end of the season. I know that the expectation is no Jimmy Garoppolo and no George Kittle against San Francisco, but if either one of those guys happens to come back, which there's been three times now this season to where a player wasn't expected to play that ended up playing against the Saints and having big days. And so I'm not going to hold out hope until that says out for certain. And I don't think Nick Mullins is that much of a drop-off from Garoppolo. No, because, yeah, for, for several reasons. Uh, you're absolutely right. And they still have a lot of talent over on that offense. I mean, Brandon Ayuk is a big play machine. And it doesn't matter what running back they have back there. They're going to produce on the ground because they have a great offensive line and they have very talented running backs despite their draft status or undrafted status. So that's still a big game. The game against Minnesota later on down the year, that's going to be a big game. Like, it doesn't matter about record at this those moment. Those are conference it opponents. About- Right. It matters about the matchup when you get there. And those are all going to be big games that the Saints are going to need to win, especially if they drop this game to Tampa Bay. It lightens up a little bit if they can win, particularly against the AFC opponents. But, you know, if you drop this game to Tampa Bay and you lose, uh, uh, you, know, you lose that game within the division, 
then that puts you in a really tough spot already having an NFC loss to the, to the, uh, the Packers. Packers. Mm-hmm. You don't want to lose more within the conference and within the division later. Well, we also know this is a primetime game. Saints do extremely well in primetime. Mm-hmm. 33 and 17 coming into the season. They've done well so far outside of the, you know, the Raiders. Um, mm-hmm. so, but, um, so that's another thing in their favor. I'm still not also 100% sold on Tampa. Everybody wants to put them as the NFC champions. You and I keep saying this week in and week out, no one in the NFC has distinguished themselves as an elite team. To me, all the best teams in the league are still in the AFC because we like the top three or four in the AFC, and then there's a glut of NFC teams that are a hair's length separation. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, look, we, we keep saying it, but um... – we keep saying it, but if anybody that's telling you that they know who's going to be in the Super Bowl this year is lying to you. Like it's not, it, that's not a thing that we know. And I think you're right to still have your reservations about Tampa Bay. If nothing else, just looking at Monday night football and looking at the game against the New York giants who by all intents and purposes, they should have absolutely throttled in this game. And I'll be interested. And we know, we already know that the saints are going to look at that film and they're going to, they're going to look to see what it is that New York did to limit Tampa Bay's offense. It doesn't matter that the saints are going to be going up against Antonio Brown. It doesn't matter because this offense is already very good. Are they the best in the NFL? No, but they're already very good. We're not talking about adding an incredible player to a bad offense. We're talking about adding a player that hasn't played for over a season to a already very good offense. So the margin and really only one game in two seasons. You yeah, know, and, right, and right. More than a season, so yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, you're talking about potential, potential packages. You're talking about some scripted plays and maybe two-minute drills. That's where Antonio Brown has the ability to have some kind of effect. But if the Saints keep doing what they're doing to where they assure themselves possession for two-minute drills, things like that, then you eliminate that part of the game for Tampa Bay. So uh, I, I think you're right to still have your reservations. I think that defense is great. I think that defense is really, really good. The secondary again, is, is much yeah. better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, uh, it's very same. Uh, very same. But we still see a lot of youth issues with that secondary Jamel Dean will bite on any double move you throw at him. Sean, Sean Murphy bunting has a lot of trouble with outbreaking routes. Like the, the issues Carlton Davis is just fantastic. And so the issues that they're ha- and they have a, a rookie safety in, in Antoine Win- Winfield, who of course is very good. Played but, well, yeah. Yeah. But you can still take advantage of again, knowledge, young yep. knowledge, and you're going up against Drew Brees, right? It's different than going up against Daniel Jones. It's different than going up against Nick Foles. Right. So we do have to keep that, keep that in perspective that the saints aren't out of this game just because Tampa is Tampa. But at the same time, this game is not a sure win for new Orleans by any stretch of the imagination. We know what a win looks like for this team. We know what a loss looks like for this team. They just need to make one of those happen over the other. Yeah. And, and I think that the, you know, Tom Brady gets NFC offensive player of the, of the month, 20 touchdowns, one pick. Yeah. Fantastic. But that's what we knew was going to happen with Tampa. It we, Jameis put up 40 touchdowns and 5,000 yards last year. The talent right. has never been the question with that offense. It was about the turnovers. And the one right. thing you know is that Tom Brady or Drew Brees, they're not going to turn the ball over on a regular basis. Right. And when your defense is giving you the field position that, Tampa is being given on a regular basis. They're not having to make 80-yard marches on, all right. the time. They're getting good field position. And with all of that around them, it's not a surprise that they're able to score. 
But they don't, like you said, against the Giants, you put up 23 points. Right. You put up 23 points against the Giants who tried to give you that game. Right. Who did everything in their power to let you blow them out, and you wouldn't do it. Yeah. You saw, what, four or five different shots downfield get overthrown by Daniel Jones. You saw the, the two-minute uh, excuse me, the two-point conversion that should have been converted, but Daniel Jones held on to the ball too long. Like, you're not going to come across that same type of that same type of issue with Drew Brees. You're just not going to – I mean, he's not going to overthrow anything to start, but he's also not going to hold on to the ball too long or, or anything like that in those situations. If that route is open, the ball is coming out, or the ball is coming out before the route is open because he knows the route is opening up, however it is that you want to look at it. So I think that, you know, the things that saved Tampa against New York aren't going to be present against new orleans however can this is another instance to where new orleans is going up against a team that doesn't put up a ton of those big 40 plus yard explosive plays They've only got four on the season so far the same amount that the saints offense has so these offenses operate thing yeah exactly and so these offenses operate very similarly and that should put new orleans in a position to where again if they give tampa bay the big offense the big play offense they will lose this game if they can keep a cap on it then they can be competitive and potentially walk away with the win just based on that as long as the offense continues to produce against a talented young defense. One coincidence um, that I thought was really interesting was Bruce Arians uh, gave his press conference and he was talking about Alvin Kamara and he says, I coached Marshall Falk and Alvin Kamara is more dangerous and he scares me more than Marshall Falk. That's who. That's exactly, exactly what we were we talking about, about last week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's really the only comparison that you can have for Alvin Kamara, and it still comes up short. It still comes up short. They got put up 163 total yards last week against the Bears defense that is, you know, good in the passing game, which is where he got most of his yardage. But then he also put up, what, 67 rushing yards, I believe, on, on more carries yeah. there. And so it, it's just it, – it's remarkable what – Alvin Kamara continues to do and that he he's just having so much fun doing it as well. And it, it's funny because every week you see him do it from a different place on the field. You know, you see him doing it out of the backfield in the run game one week, then you'll see him making a big play out on the perimeter as a receiver. You'll see him making these big plays out of the slot. They ran that trips formation to where they run him out on the real route. They ran it again against Chicago, but unfortunately the wind was a huge factor in that in the passing game but then you also see him on another week making plays as a receiver out of the backfield and so it's just it's he's so multiple in terms of where he's able to do and he's becoming a good pass blocker and you know and so you know and now he's advocating to throw the ball damn it let me throw the ball too and so you know the guy can just do whatever Um, but you know all jokes aside I mean Bruce Arians is right to point him out Um, he's been a fantastic asset and he's been the Saints number one option with Michael Thomas out He's the only player in the league right now with a thousand combined rushing and receiving right. yards. Um, extremely, it looks Saints played seven games. Right. Seven yeah. Games. He's, he's well ahead of, of any paces that I think I would have established for him at this point, knowing he was coming off of not just an injury, but multiple injuries and concerning injuries for a running back at that knee, back, ankle. Like the guy was, the guy was hanging on and by we were a thread. questioning his mindset too. Right. Did he right. want to be here? Did he, you know, was something bothering him? And, and this year there's been none of that, none of mm-hmm. those concerns. And yeah. he's having the best season of his career, he, you know, at the, up to this point. And it's just been week in and week out. When you talk about all the things the Saints don't have, but Alvin Kamara alone is such a tremendous advantage 
because right. no other team in the league has that guy. Right. He's and a chess piece. You can't prepare for that guy. Right. He's just such an unmatched chess piece that people can't prepare for at all. And then you kind of look at the fact that, you know, Michael Thomas is coming back hopefully soon. Emmanuel Sanders, he's ready to be out of quarantine. He's ready to get back on the field. Marquez Calloway is somebody who's been a reliable receiver for them now. I won't put him on the same level as Michael Thomas and Emmanuel Sanders, of course, but he's still a factor in terms of getting him back because he's a better option than Tommy Lee Lewis, Jawan Johnson, and Austin Carr for certain. And so getting those three players back may take away from the amount of touches that Alvin Kamara gets, but then you have the question of addition by subtraction because you've added all these other pieces that defenses have to pay attention to, does that actually increase the quality of Alvin Kamara's touches because he ends up getting the ball against lighter boxes. He ends up getting the ball against defenses that are going to be trying to also focus on these other playmakers out on the perimeter. So you're seeing that portion of the game that could potentially come forward to where the pace might drop off a little bit because he's on pace for ridiculous numbers over 1200 yards, over 120 catches. You'll see that pace come down, but you might still see the effectiveness and the production in terms of the quality of that production become a little bit swollen or a little bit more overemphasized because of all the attention from defenses that has to go elsewhere. Yeah. I I think the guy who, you know, I think Michael Thomas, the amount of catches he had last year was a big part in two, not just his own individual talent. We're never going to downplay Mike Thomas's individual Mm -hmm. talent, but certainly because Alvin Kamara was not the weapon he was Mm -hmm. that allowed for those 140 plus catches, his number is going to have to decrease. Um, and it was supposed to decrease with the addition of Emmanuel Sanders anyway. Right. Um, I think it changes the way the Saints may utilize Kamara at times, but I think that that touch number can't change. The total right. touch number for him cannot change. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It just, it's just that it's going to vary now in terms of what the situation is. Maybe he sees more third and short touches than the early first down touches because you can take the early first down touches to Michael Thomas. You can take the early second down touches to Emmanuel Sanders, and then you can rely on what we saw early on in the season, which was a lot of the later, um, later drive touches in the red zone touches for Alvin Kamara when he scored seven touchdowns to start. He hasn't scored a touchdown over the last couple of weeks, but his usage hasn't been so much in the red zone. It's been earlier on in drives, earlier on in field position. And that's a really, really big part of what you might see adjust with him is that he ends up getting the ball later on in drives, later on in, in, into the down counts, which allows him to be more effective in terms of adding points to the board, keeping drives alive, things like that. Because we absolutely know that Drew Brees loves that Mike Thomas first down, first down pass. Oh, 100%. So 100%. you put yourself in a second and three with that group or a second and two, and you've got the option to do whatever you want with that right. group of offensive talent. Yeah, Alvin Kamara becomes that much more dangerous because you mm-hmm. now the play action and him coming out of the backfield into those soft spots because you got to cover Mike Thomas, you got to cover Emmanuel Sanders, got to cover right. Jared Cook, all those things. Absolutely. I think that, that the big play potential is even greater for, like you said, for Alvin going forward with that. Yeah. And look, what you're seeing Alvin Kamara do right now, he's doing while defenses know he's touching the ball. And I think that that's a big thing to consider is that later on in the season, they're not going to be able to be as certain. And the two back sets that they've been running with Alvin Kamara and Latavius Murray have been particularly effective. And so you run the ball with Latavius Murray a couple of times on those second, on those second and twos 
because you've been able to pick up the early yardage and the early down pass, which the Saints have stayed away from most of this season. Then you end up setting yourself up for a nice play action pass over the middle for Alvin Kamara, who turns that into yards after catch. And so there's so many different variations now that would open up in those situations for Alvin Kamara that turn into shot plays, even though you're looking at probably a six yard pass in terms of the air yards and then it moving down the field from there, which is what this offense is and always has been predicated on, or let me not say always has been because we know Drew Brees used to be <laughs> big time gunslinger. That's why he had, they won a Super Bowl with all those interceptions, but you look at, you know, since 2017 on, that's what this offense has been built on. Thanks. Six point dog. Before we go, I understand it. You know, every game, the Saints are essentially a three point win team week to right. week. Um, and going on the road, you give them three, you know, for the home team. And then, the confidence that folks have in Tampa right now. Um, this is just feels like, again, this is one of those games for the saints that could either be really close, go down to the last minute, or if you like, they cannot put the lid on big plays against a team that doesn't get them, then it could be bad. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I always caution about big spreads and this is a big spread for the NFL. For the saints particularly about, for, and, and Tampa. Yeah. yeah. And I always caution about big spreads in division games. They they are never what they seem. Look at what the look at the spread against Carolina. I'm mean, excuse me against uh, yeah against Carolina. Seven. Everything that Seven. yeah and that, it was crazy. That, yeah, and that turned out being a the last minute down to a field goal down to inches three minute. I mean, sorry, three point win. So you know, I, I think that when you when you set up a large spread for a divisional game, it's not usually the, the best choice uh but we'll see how this one plays out yeah i mean you said it if, if the saints offense produces but the saints defense gives tampa bay the big play offense it's going to be hard to keep pace and that has just as much to do with the saints defense giving up points as it does for tampa bay scoring points but if the saints offense produces against the tampa bay defense and the saints defense can actually get that you know get those explosive plays down and and, and can again just like what we talked about ahead of week one, this is going to be a game that is going to be won with yards after catch. Absolutely. And that's, that's going to be the biggest thing. That in field position. I, I want to make sure that we acknowledge De- Deontay Harris because he has led the way to the Saints having, I, I believe it's the sixth best. It's the, it's the 31-yard line, 31.4-yard line. The, I believe it's the Ever sixth start. best um, yeah, line of scrimmage start. For, for drives and Deontay Harris is a big part of that. And so I think it's, it, it's the hidden yardage. It's the yards after catch. It's the run game. Those are the things that, that win this game. And, and all of those things are things that the saints have been strong in this season. It's just, and, and the saints defense has been strong against, they've been strong against the run game. They've limited yards after catch considerably compared to in, in, in relative to what we've seen in the past. And so if they can continue to do those things and then not give up those big plays, puts them in a good position here. And this is essentially, I believe that this is a fourth quarter game because you're not going to see tons of mistakes from Drew Brees. You're not going to see tons of mistakes from Tom Brady. If something happens, somebody's going to have to generate a mistake um, out of this. These are two quarterbacks who are going to get rid of the ball. They're not going to take sacks. So you, you know, the the saints pass rush has to be consistent, but this is one of those cases where getting home may not happen a lot. Um, I think it's going to be who, those penalties, do the Saints get caught up in, in doing what they did in the past and, and having some penalties in bad situations? Right. And third down execution, mm-hmm. which has been a big problem for the Saints at times this season, no. getting off the field on third down yeah. defensively. 
Yeah. And the, that, that red zone. Oh, that red zone. They forced a field goal last week. It was a step in the right direction. One or two. So, but, uh, but yeah. And I think, too, the other thing that I'll, I'll quickly add in is mm-hmm. Joe Judge built a defensive attack for the New York Giants that focused on not trying to fool Tom Brady, not even wasting their time with Tom Brady. They were like, get pressure, which that front seven does very well get pressure. But what they focused on was eliminating the weapons around Tom Brady. And it was effective. Yes. Gronk scored a touchdown in the end zone. Yes. Mike Evans caught a touchdown in the end zone. He's the most targeted player in the end zone since he came into the damn league. But when it comes down to what New York was able to do, the difference between New York and new Orleans is that over in the offensive side, if they, if the defense can hold you to 23 points, the saints offense has proven so far they can win with that. And that's what you're looking for in this game. Absolutely. Um, man, I think we got another good one. Um, Agreed. And I'm looking forward to this game on Sunday. Uh, I think it's we, – we talked about this. This is the stretch where they need to find themselves and, yep. and become the team that uh, down the, the second half, this is what you always ask for for the Saints, to be playing their best ball in November, December. And this is where we are. And yep. it's going to – got to separate yourself somehow. And the best way to do that is beat teams in your own conference and in your own division. Yep. Yeah. And that's, that's what this is predicated on at this point. This is what the season will, will partially be predicated on at least going into the, the, the three game road trip and then the tough stretch at the end uh, coming out on the right side of this stretch is, is vital for the same. They finish this three and one. That's, that's a huge win. If really they, because now they're in position to do that. Yep. They're in legitimate position to do that. And so, yeah, that would be huge. Uh, for me for them to do that now it feels right now the way the league looks yeah they could do it they could do it um i just this is just a hard game to decide this one right here i wouldn't i wouldn't put money on it either way no no we have no idea where this one's gonna go (laughs) ross tell the folks as we do each and every week how they can keep up with you and uh until the next episode of the don't patrol yeah, man, I appreciate it. Uh, for the Saints coverage, you can hop over to Locked on Saints, wherever it is that you get your podcast, Monday through Friday, five days a week, keeping you covered. We just did our Film Watch Wednesday. We also broke down some film notes on Quan Alexander, talking about what you're going to be looking for in terms of him beating out Alex Anzalone. If he does it, what does it mean? What does it give you? We talked about all that. Uh, we have a crossover coming up tomorrow to where David Harrison from Locked on Bucks and I are going to break down this matchup from the, the local expert angle, which is going to be a lot of fun. I love talking with that guy. He's a lot of fun. Uh, and then uh, if you want to catch the, some of the, the write-ups, you can do do so over at canalstreetchronicles.com. And I'm also on Tuesdays uh, with Locked On NFL, the national show covering the NFL from the, uh, the national angle, which has been a lot of fun. Myself and Luke Braun for Locked On Vikings doing that. So you can check that one out as well, Locked On NFL. And he'll be parking cars at SoFi Stadium out in L.A. this weekend. So. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> every, every, every single one of them that's coming through. You do I could have asked for a better gig, man. I got to yep. tell you. Yep. <laughs> uh, man, next week I, I will see with this team, w- what they've done. And, and um, I, 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 it'll be another great episode, man. It'll, yeah. it'll be another great episode. So I'm, I'm always glad we get to do this. It's one, like you said, just one of the highlights of my week just as, as well. And um, the folks love it. So good, um, man. I'm glad, I'm glad the response is good. <laughs> and we, we may have, uh, just to give a hint, we may have a third Dome Patrol member coming soon just for right. a visit. 
Yeah. We're, we're going to work on it. We have another one in for visit. And, you know, that's, that's a prerequisite though. We don't, there's no hair allowed in this, in this. No group. hair allowed. It's there's a very, no very allowed, strict man. requirement. That's right. <laughs> there will not be an Afro, a cornrow, nothing <laughs> will be <laughs> heard on this show. This is only for folks without follicles. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> until next Wednesday, um, this is the Don't Patrol, but don't forget to check out Hard to Paint every day. Uh, subscribe and rate the show. Um, I am going to break the